so today uh, we are uh, in part two of a sermon series uh, for us as a community. What that means is uh, we take significant time in our gatherings to open the scriptures and study them. And so typically we do this with a theme, a topic, one of the books of the Bible, looking at it for several weeks in a row. And so last week we started this series uh, that we've titled Cultivate. And what we're thinking about and considering is the big, huge biblical idea of generosity and uh, what it means and looks like for us to consider the resources that we've been given and how it is that we can use those for the furthering of the kingdom um, in, our, in our time and place, right? Uh, last week, as we started the series, though, um, and I should have kind of mentioned this, the first three weeks are kind of a foundation for it. So we're not even getting like super practical in terms of our money, our time, our energy, or even like our gifts, our spiritual gifts and so forth. But rather, what we're gonna spend the first three weeks doing, we started last week, is uh, digging into the character and the nature of God as generous. Um, because we, we believe as followers of Jesus that the primary motivation that we ought to have um, uh, or inspire us to be a generous people is because we see it in God himself. And so last week we spent some, some time looking at the generosity of the Father, um, specifically in Genesis 1 and 2, but then the entire Old Testament, how God the Father is in himself love and if he is himself love, love is giving by nature, and so he gives himself, and he's constantly giving, and so the story of the Old Testament is about this father who just never stops loving. He just keeps on giving. Um, that might be a, a little misconstrued in some of our minds because we read through and we might notice some things where it seems like that's not really the character and nature of God, and we'll get into that today as we look into the generosity of the Son and uh, why it is that God might send his Son into this world to bring uh, really a lot more clarity to the reality of his character and nature. And so I would like to do that this morning uh, by looking into the generosity of the Son, by looking into one passage uh, uh, and then really the entire Gospel of Matthew, as I mentioned. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 419 is where I'm going to read, and we're going to look at a bunch of ways in which we see the Son is generous in that passage, um, but then really we're going to do a flyover over the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we could go to Luke, John, uh, we could go anywhere in the epistles to find the generosity of Jesus for sure, um, but just to kind of narrow our focus, because we could be here all day trying to just look at the ways in which Jesus is generous, and even out the gate you might wonder, like, why even bother? We all came here, like, acknowledging that Jesus is generous, like we all know that. So I actually want to dig into why this is significant before we even get into his acts of generosity. So if you have a Bible, Matthew 3, uh, starting in verse 13, is where it is that we're going to be. A little bit of a lengthy reading, but uh, it's okay. We're in church, and we love the scriptures. So, I mean, if this is the most you've read the Bible this week, we won't point you out, but it's okay. You're getting some Bible in this morning. So here's what the scriptures say, then I'll pray. A little bit of introduction, we'll dig in. So Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented and when Jesus was baptized, immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And that was awesome. And the tempter came and he said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, 
All right, are you guys still tracking with me? Because there was, that was, okay. So Jesus is in the wilderness. He's being tempted. I'm just, I'm, I'm recognizing that I'm not in the wilderness with Jesus right here. So just want to draw you back, okay? So the tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, this is Jesus, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then the devil took him to the holy city. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be Gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here's what Isaiah said. The land of Zebulun the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. So, tons of examples of Jesus' generosity in here, some implicit, some explicit, but let's pray and let's think about the generosity of the Son. Father, thank you. Thank you for your generosity that you've provided for us uh, a space to gather. You've provided us time to gather. You've provided for us... um, songs to sing. You've provided for us scriptures to engage with you and hopefully learn more of who you are, what you're like. You've provided for us your son, your express image that we might truly understand you and walk in your ways. You provided your spirit who leads and guides in truth. You've provided the opportunity to come to the table to partake of the body and the blood of your son. And Father, we ask that you would help us to uh, not squander this moment, but to really take advantage of it. Help us to give our minds, give our hearts to however it is that you want to mold and shape us. We trust that you will. That's what you're about. So help us do what is necessary for us. We give this time to you. We ask these things in the most matchless, the most precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Amen and amen. So I want to think with you about uh, the son as generous or the generosity of the son, uh, namely as uh, generosity being sort of an attribute or a characteristic, a quality that is part of the very nature of who Jesus is. Um, Under these kind of three headings, we hit on them last week too with the generosity of the father. The first being just like the fact that his nature is generous. Like what does that actually mean? Why is that important? Then how it is that we can see that if his nature is generous, then you should see this in his actions, right? If that's who he is, 
in his identity, then that's what's going to flow out of him. That's the way that he's going to, to live and act. Um, and we'll spend most of our time there. And then lastly, and kind of briefly before we come to the table, we'll see like why this actually matters in our day. Um, but again, we're going to get a lot more practical in the last three sermons of this series. So First of all, I want to think with you about the nature of the son as generous. And the reason I want to talk about this is uh, actually kind of going a bit back to last week. And you don't have to have listened last week or been here last week um, to understand this. But the father, as we spoke about last week, is in himself generous. That's just part of who he is. It's his very nature, right? And so we talked about because this is the very nature of God as love, and if love is really kind of in its essence, the giving, the self-giving, uh, uh, what it is that one has to another, if that's really what love is, and he is love, then that's what he will do. And so we, last week we walked through Genesis 1 and 2 and even the entire Old Testament to see how the father himself is generous because he is love. Now, if you're anything like me, um, which you may or may not be, um, I tend to hear sermons like that and think to myself, okay, that's great that you laid out in Genesis 1 and 2 that God is generous, he's giving. But then I read through the Old Testament and I kind of go, well, I don't know, there's places where it doesn't seem like God is so generous or so giving. And even if it's not the scriptures that make me wonder if that's the case, it's my own maybe subconscious understanding of God. So here's what I mean by that, right? Last week I mentioned that many of us, I, I think, subconsciously think of God as like a cosmic killjoy. Many of us think of God probably as one who has everything, but he's kind of dangling this carrot in front of your face, you know, like the cartoons and like trying to bribe you into following after him. And I mentioned how that, that seems to be a false perception of God, because when you read through Genesis 1 and 2, before humans are even made, and before they can therefore achieve anything, accomplish anything, God just gives, and he gives, and he gives. And if that's the, if that's the truth about God, then that should be the truth of, about the Son, who is the express image of the invisible God. But I wouldn't be surprised if for many of us, when you hear the word God, like if we were just throw up on the screen the, the word God, just G-O-D, like what would come to your mind? Would what comes to your mind be characteristics or qualities that have to do with generosity and love and kindness and goodness? Or would what comes to your mind when you hear the word God be something opposite of that? When somebody says God, what goes on in your head? And I know I spent all last week talking about generosity, but I wouldn't be surprised if even after that you're like, yes, the Father is generous. Sometime during this week you thought to yourself, well, God is not actually infinitely generous. There's something about our subconscious or our default way of thinking about God that makes us steer away from the, the truth of who he is. We end up buying into false things, false characteristics, qualities about God, and then we mold ourselves into that. Last week we talked about this A.W. Tozer quote where he said, the most important thing about you is the way that you think about God because you will inevitably try to form yourself to that. And so if God is not ultimately and infinitely love and generous, then we're going to live and be molded into something different. The reason I want to talk about the generosity of the Son, even though I think we all recognize that Jesus, if we threw up the word Jesus, and you said, what is Jesus like? You might say, love, generosity. Those words would come to mind. Why is it that if we were to throw up the word Jesus, you would think of those qualities, but when we throw up the word God, you might not think of those qualities. Like, where, where is the disconnect there? Because really, the first thing that should come to mind when somebody says God is Jesus. 
Like that should be the first thing that comes to mind. He's the express image of the invisible God. But there's a disconnect. So the reason I want to talk to the generosity of the Son, even though it might seem super obvious for us today, is because I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of who the Father is and what the Father is like. In other words, what I'm talking about, in, in a sense, is a polemic. Uh, if you're not familiar with the, the language of polemics, a polemic is basically a rebuttal to a truth claim. But it's not just a rebuttal to try to prove the truth claim wrong. It's a rebuttal that's trying to prove a greater or more true truth claim. Okay? So when somebody says, here's what I think about God, this is true. A polemic would be, no, that's not who God is and what God is like. And instead, here is who God is and what God is like. And I would argue that what's happening in the person and work of Jesus is actually a personified polemic. And this is what God has been doing for centuries because of our misunderstanding of who he is. So in fact, if you go back to Genesis, I might even argue that Genesis 1 through 2 is even in itself a polemic. And here's what I mean by that. If you go back into the ancient Near Eastern cultures and you think about the gods or the deities in which they believed that they subscribed to, and there was a number of them around, a number of nations around during the time of Moses when he was writing Genesis, they had creation narratives, right? They had accounts of who God is and what God is like in terms, or the gods, in terms of how it is that he made things, and so who he is in relationship to the stuff that he makes, but then also humanity, right? So you read like the Enuma Elish or Gilgamesh or something like that, and you notice that there are gods or a single god, but they They all come from something. So they come from, for instance, the mountains or something like that. But when when those gods of those ancient Near Eastern cultures come from something, what they're saying is those gods or the god, whatever, if it's polytheistic or if it's just monotheistic, that god is limited because it comes from something. It comes from something, it's finite. If it's finite, it's lacking something. If it's lacking something, then it's gonna strive to get whatever it is in need of. So when you read the ancient Near Eastern understandings of God as the one who, whatever, brings things into existence, you notice that he's finite. So he's always after something because he's lacking something. You also notice that the relationship between the God or the gods with humanity has mostly to do with oppression or human beings are created in order to be slaves. So the God or the gods make them so that they can serve them. But when you read through Genesis, what you find is the complete opposite of that. You find that Yahweh is not looking for anything to to be his slave, but instead because he is infinite outside of things. He's not one who is made, but he's infinite. He's the one who makes. That means he's lacking nothing. It means he's not striving to get something for himself. And in his relationship to humanity, because he makes human beings and breathes into them life and puts them in the garden and gives to them dominion, what you notice is that his relationship to humanity is not one of oppression and slavery. So in other words, Genesis in itself is a polemic. Like the the surrounding nations would have looked at what the Israelites thought of Yahweh and been like, whoa, that's a completely different deity than what we have subscribed to. That's part of the point. When Jesus steps onto the scene, Jesus is in himself a personified polemic. What I mean by that is that there were all sorts of people who misunderstood God, right? Even the religious leaders misunderstood God. They were searching the scriptures and Jesus even confronts them on that and he's like, you're missing the whole point. So what Jesus is doing when he's walking around or the incarnation in itself is trying to help people to see what you think about God is wrong and here's what God is really like. But in Jesus, it's not just in words like in Genesis. In Jesus, it's in a person. 
and a person who actually acts out these things. So what Jesus is doing is he's helping us to see God more clearly, more rightly, more truly. That's what Jesus' mission is really all about. You have a misunderstanding of God and who he is and what he's like, and I'm gonna show you who he is and what he's like. So what I'd like to do with you today is help you to think about like wherever it is that you landed in so far as who God is and God the Father from last week, if you still question whether or not he's generous, whether he really is infinitely loving, what I want you to do is look at Jesus so that you can clarify in your mind that yes, the Father actually is that as well for Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. In fact, Jesus, um, he actually speaks to this. Uh, it's really interesting. If, if somebody were to say, like, why did Jesus come? Uh, you might give all sorts of answers, right? You could say, well, he came to bind the brokenhearted, set the captives free. You might say, well, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to be a healer. He came to be an example. He came to be a rabbi, right? And all of those things are true. But when Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate, he lets us in on exactly why it is that he came. In John chapter 18, here's what it says. You say that I am king. This is Jesus before Pontius Pilate. He says, for this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world. Like notice this, Jesus is giving a mission statement. This is why I came, to bear witness to the truth. For everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus came so that we might have a clear picture of who God is and what God is like, right? So if last week we were making a huge statement that God is in himself love and therefore generous, and you think that that could be partly false, if you, if you have a misunderstanding of God, what we're doing today is we're clarifying, no, God actually is infinitely loving and generous. And so how is this seen? Well, it's seen in the acts of Jesus himself, right? And so if you just look at the life of Jesus from even before he enters into the world, what you're going to find is Jesus in himself being the infinite loving and therefore generous God through everything. So if we look back, um, we can see this, first of all, with his, with his willful incarnation. So in Matthew 3, and this is a little bit more implicit, but track with me, it says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so. Let the baptism happen. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So then he consented and when Jesus was baptized, immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Notice this, Jesus enters onto the scene, right? Now, we, of course, we skipped the, the narrative of his birth and all of that kind of stuff, but Jesus is beginning his ministry here. And as Jesus begins his ministry, he goes out to John to be baptized. John was uh, one of the greatest prophets. Um, it's, Jesus actually says he was the greatest prophet, and he was out there baptizing in this baptism, baptism of repentance so that people would see that the, the Savior was coming, and they would buy into that. They would repent from their false understandings of who God is, and they would begin to follow the Messiah. So John's paving the way for this. Jesus goes out to John to be baptized, and here's what he says. The reason is to fulfill all righteousness. This doesn't seem to me to be something that Jesus just came up with in a moment. This seems to be helping us understand the motivation for why Jesus came to begin with and specifically why it is that he was baptized. In other words, what we're catching a glimpse of here with Jesus is why it is that he came. And he says, here's why, to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus looks down from heaven, right, before he takes on flesh, and he sees brokenness. 
Now, of course, he's looking down at this time and place at the Roman Empire, and you might think that, like, oh, well, the Pax Romana, everybody's in peace, and, like, all of that stuff, but that's not necessarily true, right? The Pax Romana was simply the Roman way of saying, you better behave or we're going to kill you. And so it looks like peace because nobody wants to die, but it's actually oppression. And so when Jesus looks down and he sees this, he notices not just this this fake understanding of what peace is, but he also sees human brokenness just like we have today. He sees all sorts of ethnocentrism, racism. He sees riots. He sees insurrections. He sees very much of what exactly is happening today just on a different level, and maybe we know about it more than they did at the time. But when Jesus looks down, he sees brokenness. He sees darkness. He sees decay. He sees death. And in his looking down at it, he doesn't say, oh, eh, I, I don't know. I don't really want to do that. I'm not sure. Nor does he say, oh, I'll go, but I don't really want to. Nor does somebody hold a gun to his head and say, you better go and fix this. What we're seeing here is that Jesus' motive was to fulfill all righteousness. What that means is that he wants everything back together. When he sees brokenness, he cannot help but say, I must fix it. He doesn't run away. He doesn't go in reluctantly. He's not forced into it. His very nature is to enter into it. This is part of who God is and what God is like, right? Because God is in himself love, he must bring forth shalom. He has to. He can't deny himself. So here what we see is Jesus entering in and really just subscribing to the work that God was doing through John, but to fulfill all righteousness, to bring it all back together because that's part of who he is, right? As the story carries on, we notice his generosity also in his submission to the Spirit. So Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry, so he was led up by the Spirit. So right after Jesus is baptized, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, the Father speaks, right? Jesus, by the Spirit, is taken into this place. And this is actually really significant, and Matthew here is is playing on a whole bunch of Old Testament imagery, um, the story of Israel, even the story of Adam, and in the temptation, letting us in on what Jesus is really all about. So this submission to the Spirit is Jesus giving himself over right, to the spirit that brings forth light. If you recall last week, we, uh, we spoke in great detail to how it is that God brings forth goodness. And when God brings forth goodness, which we spoke to as light, right, so God speaks and he brings light into the darkness. He separates the day and the night. That is goodness. That's why he says it is good. When God brings forth goodness, the way that he does it is by way of his spirit. So spirit's hovering over the face of the deep, and when God speaks, he brings forth light. So God uses the means of the spirit to bring forth goodness. Here what we find is Jesus is submitting himself to that same spirit to be taken into a place of darkness. Like that's what the wilderness is. The wilderness is a place of darkness. It's a place of death. It's a place of isolation. And this is a metaphor used throughout the Old Testament, namely as it, as it pertains to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was taken out of Egypt, right, out of slavery, and they were taken into the wilderness, which was a place of testing. And it was there in the wilderness that they lacked things, right? They lacked food. They lacked water. And so they, they were being tested. They were crying out to God, oh, it would be so much better for us to just go back to Egypt and be slaves. And Moses is like, you crazy people. And, and so God provides They failed the test in that wilderness, right? As the nation of Israel is brought into the promised land, hundreds of years later, later, they're brought into the promised land. They again fail to trust in God. And what happens is they're taken into exile, which again is another time of testing. Jesus here is led by the spirit who is good, who wants to bring forth goodness into a place that is dark. 
into a place that is a place of testing. And the whole point is for him to overcome it so that you can see that God really is in himself good. This isn't like any simple kind of wilderness or place of isolation. He's tempted by Satan himself. Now, I think we've we've preached on Satan before, but I wouldn't be surprised if many of us have misunderstandings about Satan. I'm not going to go into great detail. But Satan is limited. He's limited in time and space. Like he's, he's an, an individual being, which means he can't be doing this to everybody all the time. So if you, if you ever feel like you're being tempted or tested by Satan, you're a pretty important person <laughs> because he went out of his way to not just send one of his minions or demons to get you, he himself wants to get you. Okay, so what you have here with Jesus is, is him entering into a place where it's not just dark and isolated and, and, and so forth, but where he is going to take on the one who, who initially tempted Eve so that that wilderness would even exist. So the whole point here is that by the spirit, he's going to overcome and bring forth goodness. And he doesn't shy away. Like, just imagine that for a second. If somebody came to you and said, hey, I want you to meet a friend of mine. His name is Satan. Let's go for a little road trip. You'd be like, no thanks. And Jesus is like, let's go. And why is Jesus like, let's go? Because that's part of who he is. He's come in to overcome what is evil and to bring forth what is good because that's part of his nature. That's what he does. He can't not do it, right? So he submits to the spirit. You carry on in the story and you notice his kingdom inclusion. And what I mean by this is reaching the margins. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Of course, why wouldn't you? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, and here's what the prophet said. So this is where Jesus goes, and this is what the prophet said. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, notice this, Galilee of the Gentiles. And then he describes the people. The people dwelling in darkness, they've seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Jesus begins his ministry, and the first thing that he does after being baptized, going to the wilderness, is to go and to find these marginalized people. These people who are in darkness, or as described here by Isaiah, death. He goes to them. Now we read other places in the gospel narratives that Jesus came first to the Jews, and and that makes sense in the story, like what Jesus is doing in coming to the Jews first, is he's trying to help them to understand their mission, their purpose, which was to be a light to the Gentiles, but they failed at that. So what Jesus does is he goes there himself. He goes right out to where it is that he had called them to be the entire time, out into the darkness. He goes out to this place where there are people who are on the outskirts, people who are marginalized, people who are away from the light, people who are in the darkness. That's where he goes first. And he does this because he has, like that's just who he is. That's what he does. When people don't see and understand who God is, he goes to them. That's what he has to do. But notice the, 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 like who these people are and what these people are like. These people were the people that were pushed out by the Jews. These were the people who the Jews, even though they had the light of God, decided not to share it with them. Those are the people that Jesus went to. And then notice, even when he calls his first disciples, as the story carries on, it says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting an net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Jesus goes to these average, everyday people. He doesn't go to the elites. He doesn't go to, the, you know, to those with power, to those with money. He goes right to these fishermen and he says, I want to do something with you. And it's not just like, hey, come and follow me. Like, I want to make you into something. I want to make you into fishers of men. 
this in itself is, like, is a tremendous calling, right? Uh, most of us don't see this kind of on, on the paper here, um, or I'm on my iPad, you get the idea. Um, we don't see the significance of what it means to be a rabbi or to be a disciple of a rabbi. To be a rabbi in Jesus' day was a huge deal. Everybody couldn't just go around and say, oh, I'm a rabbi. You had to meet certain qualifications. It was like, I mean, it was a lifelong journey for the most part. You'd be really well educated in the Torah, understanding the story of God and the scriptures and so forth. To be a rabbi, to be called a rabbi was significant. To be a disciple of a rabbi was almost equally as significant. So to be called under the wings of a rabbi to learn their ways was a big deal. Most people didn't get that opportunity. That's why you see them just as fishermen. They probably went through schooling early on, but they didn't meet the qualifications to actually follow after a rabbi. Here Jesus comes by, and as a rabbi, which is a huge deal, he says, you, you might think you're just fishing. I've got something for you. I've got something extraordinary for you. And they're just fishermen. Have you ever wondered why their dad would just be like, yeah, go ahead, go hang out with the weird old rabbi guy? That's why, because it was significant. They actually, they were like, a rabbi just called you. Go, like, why wouldn't you go? Go, that's an amazing opportunity. And so here they, they get to go, and it's just these everyday fishermen. You read through the rest of the story of Matthew and then even on in the Gospels, and you notice these people that Jesus calls are, are always the people that it would seem like if, you were, if it was schoolyard pick, right, and you got to pick first, like you're not picking them, right? These are the people that Jesus always picks. He picks the woman at the well, right? He picks Matthew, who himself is a tax collector. And then after he picks Matthew, he finds Simon, who's a zealot, which is like an insurrectionist, primarily against tax collectors. So Simon actually probably saw Matthew and was like, I'd like to stab you right now. Like that's probably what happened. And, and Jesus finds these guys and calls them into this community. This is Jesus, again, out of his generosity. He's not, he's not pushing aside or saying, you're the A team, you're the B team, you're varsity, you're JV. Like that's not what's happening with Jesus. He's like anybody, everybody, to the Gentiles, to the people who are down and out, to those who are like just wherever it is that you are, Jesus is calling in because it's part of his very nature, right? So he's inclusive. But notice also in his kingdom teaching. So after he does this, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So out of the nature of Jesus being generous, what he's going to do is he's going to shed light or truth into like who God is and what God is like. And so he begins to preach the kingdom, right? He begins to tell people about what the kingdom is really like and therefore what God is really like. If you carry on through the gospel of Matthew, you're gonna notice that right after this happens, Jesus heals a bunch. We're gonna get to that in just a second. And then he begins to preach Jesus' most famous sermon, Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. And this kingdom teaching is all about who God is, what God is like, his relationship to you, and what it is that he wants to do in the world. And so he starts with these identifying kind of terms, right? So he starts the Sermon on the Mount, some of you are probably familiar with this, the Beatitudes, right? He says, blessed are you. He says, the poor in spirit, the meek, and so forth, right? And when he blesses, what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out your identity or your relationship to him, right? You can't really catch this right out the gate. You gotta read through the entire story of God to understand this, but when God calls Adam to be his humanity, to be his image bearer, God blesses him, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Then when Adam fails and humanity spirals out of control, he calls Noah and he blesses him. He says, be fruitful and multiply. When Noah and his family line spirals out of control, he calls Abraham and he blesses Abraham. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. And when Israel is going down the tank, he calls Moses and does the same thing. And then he does the same thing with David. What God is doing throughout all of these blessings is he's saying, this is who you are to me. 
like to me, to who I am as God in the flesh. This is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. As God in the flesh, this is who you are to me. You are the blessed, which means you have the opportunity to bring forth God and his kingdom into the world. Then after he identifies us, and he carries on, he says, you're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. He begins to tell you what that kingdom looks like. And so he talks about oaths, and he talks about lust, and he talks about all of these different ways in which God and who he is and what he's like is going to bring his kingdom into the world through you because you are the blessed people. So he calls all sorts of different people to himself because he's generous. Then he, he relays to them what the kingdom actually looks like. So when we look out at the world and we have misunderstandings, when, it's, when it just seems like, sorry, freaked me out a little bit there. Um, <laughs> when we have misunderstandings about how God might work in the world, Jesus is like, well, look it. Sermon on the Mount, like, look it. This is, this is who God is and what God is like. This is what he's calling you to. Not the ways of the world, but this. And as he does this, he's letting us in. He's letting us in on where it is that we have darkness, where we have misunderstanding. And this is totally out of his generosity. So he teaches. But then also, kingdom revelation. And what I mean by that is that he doesn't just teach, he acts out what he teaches. And so, as you carry on, when he went through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, notice this, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Notice this. Jesus doesn't just teach about what it means to love your neighbor. So that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Love God, love your neighbor. Like, that's the whole point. He doesn't just teach it. He begins to do it. And think about this scene, right? People are coming who are ill. People are coming who are having seizures. People are coming who have possession of, like they're possessed by demons. Can you just imagine the scene? Like, could you imagine if a whole bunch of people came in here today with all of these issues, like it would be a madhouse, right? I mean, people just having seizures, people oppressed by demons, you'd be like, what is going on? Where did all these people come from? And Jesus doesn't say, as we would, I gotta get out of here. (laughs) This is is crazy, this is a mess. Jesus is like, come here. And he starts healing people. So he he teaches about the kingdom, but he lives the kingdom. And and this isn't, again, much like his incarnation. This isn't out of reluctance. This isn't because somebody's holding a gun to his head. This is because this is who he is. Who he is, by nature, is one who gives, who brings forth the kingdom, and therefore one who heals. This is just part of who he is. But not only that, you move forward in the Gospel of Matthew, and this is getting now farther outside of where we read. In Matthew 9, you notice the forgiveness of sin. So it says, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic. Notice this, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, he saw their faith, and then he says to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And so behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So here what you have is Jesus extending himself or giving of part, just again, because of who he is. This man has not earned anything. He's not achieved anything, but he's giving the forgiveness of sin. And notice this. Not only, this man didn't show up even on his own. People brought him. Like, when you, when you want to think about somebody who hasn't earned or achieved anything, 
Like, that's this guy. He didn't even show up on his own. His friends brought him. And Jesus sees that he has not done anything at all, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, you realize what forgiveness is, right? Forgiveness, uh, kind of simply stated, is the absorbing of a debt or a penalty or some gap on oneself. So here's what I mean, right? When, when somebody does something wrong to you, right? When they sin against you in whatever way it might be, they said something wrong, they took something, whatever it might be. If you're going to grant forgiveness, what you're doing is you're giving to them ahead of time the absorption of whatever is in between, okay? So you're forgiving. You're saying, I'm not waiting for you to earn your way back into rightness with me. I'm not waiting for you to pay back what it is that you stole. I'm not waiting for you to say that you're sorry. I'm not waiting for you to earn that trust back. I'm not waiting at all. I'm going to step in there and move towards you. And when somebody does that, what they're doing is they're absorbing whatever that debt penalty gap is on themselves, right? So what Jesus is doing here with this guy is precisely that. He's saying, I'm not gonna wait for you to achieve anything, to earn anything, to do anything. I am going to step in the gap and I'm going to say, I will absorb it all so that we can be united. Like, that's what Jesus is doing here. And I wanna point out something really quite significant here. This is not, again, it's not stemming from Jesus' reluctance or, or gunpoint or anything like that. In fact, Jesus here hasn't even died. Jesus here is granting forgiveness to somebody even before he dies because he can. He's that infinite. He's that generous. He has so much in him, he's lacking nothing. He doesn't require anything to say, I can bridge the gap. He just can. And he does here with this guy. He gives out of his own nature, which is infinite. He doesn't wait for anything to happen. He can just do it. And so he grants the forgiveness of sin. But notice also his provision for greater. And this might seem not super important, um, so I'm gonna bring in some other places in the scriptures, but I wanted to stick with Matthew. Here in Matthew 9, it says, the disciples of John, they came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, I'm not going to get into details of like wine and so forth during that time and place. What Jesus is getting at here, though, and really just what I want to capitalize on from other places that you find in the gospel narratives and the epistles, is Jesus here is giving a promise of more. And what we mean by that, and what I think Jesus means by that, is the promise of abundant life, or in Jesus' terms in John, eternal life. Right? So in the gospel of John, Jesus will say, Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life, that you might have it abundantly. And when Jesus speaks to his disciples, he, he speaks of how it is that he came to give eternal life. And this is eternal life, to know the Father and the Son in whom he sent. What Jesus is saying in this and throughout the rest of the gospel narratives and even into the epistles is that he has come that this thing that you experience in the here and now wouldn't be just as simple as what we all perceive, but there would be a whole nother level of life. That's what eternal life is. We all experience life, but eternal life and knowing the Father is what Jesus has come to do that this thing wouldn't just be bland and wait until you die so that you can experience him in heaven. No, now, 
is what he's come to do, right? Now, uh, again, that's a bit of a flyover, but I thought it was kind of important. The, the second to last one I wanna, I wanna point out is his body and his blood. So, as they were eating, this is at the Passover meal, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it, he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink new with you in my Father's kingdom. Just kind of as a side before we really get into this, like, could you just imagine sitting there with, <laughs> with Jesus is one thing, but like with a guy that you maybe aren't quite sure if he's actually deity yet, and you'll notice that they doubt even after the resurrection. Some look at him and they still doubt. There's this guy sitting with you at a meal, and he's like, here's some bread. It's my body. You'd be like, are you a wacko? Like, what's going on? Hold on, wait a second. Oh, yeah, here, here's a cup, too. It's my blood. Like, what is going on with this guy? What's going on here is Jesus is explaining to them about his generosity. He's, he's talking to them about why it is that he's come and how it is that he gives. And the way that Jesus gives is never just a little bit. It's never even just enough. It's all of who he is. And that's what the body and the blood represent. When Jesus takes on flesh, he submits himself to the form that we all know. And the form that we all know as human beings is like, this is it. All of who I am in body and what's in me as blood keeps me in existence. So this is my existence. The body and blood of Jesus in this moment is his existence. And what's he going to do with it? He's not gonna hoard it. Jesus isn't about hoarding at all. Because Jesus is in himself love and therefore generosity, what he's going to do, he's going to give it. He's going to give everything that he has in this life to his disciples right there. And so he says, my body and even everything inside of me, my blood, I'm giving. This is part of who he is. It's his very nature to give. But also, lastly, is his current authority or his presence. So this is the very end of Matthew. Jesus came and he said to them, all authority, this is after the resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice what he's going to do with his authority that's been given to him. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus conquers Satan's sin and death. He gets all authority. And then what's his first move? You better stay over there. These are my chips. No. Jesus' first move is, look what I got. Here. You can have it. I want you to go. I want you to take everything that, I'm, that I've just achieved. I'm giving it to you. I want you to go and use everything that I've given you. Like, this is, this is the ultimate display of generosity, right? He just achieved everything. Do you remember the temptation? Look out at this. I could give you everything. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to serve the Lord. And Jesus serves the Lord. He obtains everything, not from Satan's means, but from his submissive means to the Father who is generous. And when he obtains everything, all authority in heaven and on earth, you can have it, friends. Like that's what he does, he gives. And so what we see here in the picture of Jesus is what I was just describing in the beginning. If you have an understanding of God that does not look like 
the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus, obtaining all authority and giving it away. If, it, if your understanding of God doesn't look like the forgiveness of sin or meeting you wherever you are, not expecting you to earn or achieve, if your understanding of God, the Father, does not fit in with what we just described, you have a misunderstanding of God. Jesus is letting us know that God truly is infinitely generous and loving. Like that's his whole point. And so if that's the case, a couple things. The first is, I want you to know this too. You can't outgive Jesus. And what I mean by that is just think about some of the things that we listed, right? He gives these things so that you might be a giver as well. He gives you forgiveness so that you might be a forgiver. He gives you the opportunity to bring his kingdom into this world, right? He gives you his spirit so that you might submit to him and you might bring forth not just fruit, but also even overcome the works of Satan in the world. Like he gives and he gives and he gives and, 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 and so he, he, you cannot outgive him. If you recognize all that he's given to you, know this, you can't exhaust him. He's going to keep on giving you the strength, the power, whatever is needed for you to work in this world however it is he wants you to work. And with that, not only does he d- d- can that, but you can't, out, you can't outgive him, and he's still giving even now. So wherever you are today, like if you're in a place where you, you feel like God is not generous, that he's not giving you what it is that you need, like, listen, much like I mentioned last week, this is not like a, this isn't a, a prosperity gospel kind of thing where like you just name it and claim it and like all that kind of stuff. There are issues in this world, as we mentioned last week, like just the nature of humanity and the scarcity and the way that people hoard and the way that people are greedy and how it messes up the whole dynamic of the world. That's, just because that's the reality that we live in now doesn't mean that that's the reality of who God is and what God will ultimately do. What God is ultimately going to do is he's going to provide for every single one of your needs, which means that in the now, you can exhaust yourself of all of them. Whatever it is that you have, don't live in fear of giving it away whether it's emotional, spiritual, psychological, physical, don't live in fear about giving those things away because one day he's going to give you far more than you could ever ask or think or imagine. You're going to have fullness, completion with him in relationship but also in life. So if you're living in fear today, the God of the scriptures is generous. Don't live in fear. Like let him use you however he wants to. Let me pray for us and then we'll partake of communion and song. Father, thank you. Thank you for letting us in on who you are and what you're like. Thank you that we can trust that you are generous, loving, kind. Thank you that you've given to us your son that whenever we misunderstand you, we can look, we can see, we can know, we can trust that you are love. You are generous. This morning I pray that wherever, wherever people are at, myself included, wherever it is that we're living in fear or misunderstanding your generosity, that you would help us to live life to the fullest with open hands, recognizing that one day you're gonna make all things new. Whatever we, has right, whatever we have right now, you wanna use. Help us to give ourselves to that. In Jesus' name, amen.